This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 337 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Alan Sparks. Now, Alan is a veteran law enforcement officer from Australia. He was involved in numerous tragedies whilst wearing the uniform and also multiple rescues as a civilian not wearing a uniform. So an incredible life story. He also wrote a book, The Cost of Bravery, detailing not only those those incidents, but also the mental health cost and the way he found his way out of that. So such a powerful story from someone who truly is a hero. We use that word lightly, but he truly is. And then has the courage to tell his own story of the human side. The cost of doing the job that we do and the kind of ripple effect of that job. So before we get to that interview, like I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings truly do make us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then as I mentioned over and over again, this is a free library for you, the audience. Whether it's individually, whether it's in a fire department or a business, whatever it is, use these incredible episodes. All I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these amazing men and women's stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Alan Sparks. Enjoy. So, Alan, 
Alan, I want to first start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview in your morning, my evening, with you being in Australia. So firstly, thank you for uh, coming on the Behind the Show podcast. Oh, look at James. It's um, bloody exciting to be here, I can assure you. And I also want to make sure I do at the beginning so I don't forget to thank Mick Strelli for uh, connecting us as well. Yeah, he's a good guy, Mick. And um, yeah, I'm indebted to Mick for uh, all the work that he's done to help police and first responders generally across New South Wales, across Australia and across the world. He's, he's, a, he's a bloody good bloke. He is indeed. He's amazing. All right. Well, then my very first question, where exactly on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I'm in... Uh, in the inner city of Sydney, James. Brilliant. Yeah, great, great part of the world. Absolutely. I so I lived in Sydney for I think it was two months, three months, and uh, on Manly, Manly Island, beautiful okay. place. Yeah. All right. So then, starting at the very beginning. So where were you born, and what was your family dynamic when you were young? What did your parents do, and how many siblings? Uh, I was born in a very small uh, country town. Roughly 360 odd kilometres west of Sydney, and I then, obviously, after I was born, I was taken to my hometown, which was an even smaller town. It was a little village of a population in the town of about 250 people. I had a brother who was two and a half years older than me. Um, my mother came from a rural background, from a farming background, uh, and my dad's. He had a what they call a general store, so it was the sort of the, the town store that serviced the rural community with not only uh, supermarkets and giftware, but hardware, heavy hardware, fuel, all that sort of stuff to essentially mean that farmers from the area could just go to this shop and buy most, if not all, they needed for their farms, uh, and and to keep keep producing the stuff I needed to produce. Brilliant. Now, when you look back in, in, in your childhood, because I like to ask this when, when people are from very small communities, do you did you identify like that real communal sense, that tribal sense that we seem to lose in some of the larger cities? Absolutely. Not only in the... I think there's a number of factors. Like There was... The, the strong sense of community, and I, my mind immediately springs to the times when somebody would die in, in the community and the rallying of the people around that family was just phenomenal and the funeral was always huge. Uh, the ongoing support was always there. If somebody was injured, there was always massive support, you know, women cooking and bringing meals in and doing washing for people. And, yeah, just a, a great sense of caring about each other. And that, sadly, is what I see has been a huge decline in our society overall, is this just sense of caring and kindness for one another. Yeah, well, sadly, that's something that we're experiencing at the moment. I think even in, in you know before this this kind of unrest that we have in America with the the tension between you know racial groups and law enforcement, but even in in the COVID time, you know, I think people realized when they were thrust into isolation in their homes how much they actually missed that human interaction. Yeah, yeah, social contact is critically important for for most people, and the yeah I remember sort of growing up. Uh, any social event that was on the calendar, it was 
great sense of excitement to know that you're going to catch up with family and friends. Uh, Christmas was particularly special where we'd go from home to home to home on Christmas Day to, to see friends and see family and celebrate. And Yeah, and that's, that certainly has changed over the years, which I think to the detriment of our societies. Absolutely. Well, we're going to explore tribal cohesion, I guess you'd say, later when it comes to your profession. And my profession is very similar, but I think that's another contributing factor to some of the mental ill health that we see is that sense of belonging that you find in a good, you know, uh, law enforcement environment or fire, fire environment or the military. People, when they either leave those, excuse me, (laughs) when people either leave those professions, they feel, you know, that, that kind of, isolation in that respect and i think a lot of people never even find that tribe and so that's uh you know very detrimental i think to the human psyche as a whole yeah, especially when you come from an environment where it was so strong in your life to having a, a huge void and unless that void is filled then i think people as you say are extremely vulnerable and at risk of a whole raft of things going wrong uh in their lives Absolutely. All right. Well, then back to your childhood. You're out in this smaller town. What what kind of sports were you playing as a child? Uh, at primary school, uh, we, I mean, I went to a very small uh, primary school or junior school, as they call it in America. Uh, you know, we had 100 students there. So there wasn't a great deal of choice for sport. I played uh, rugby league in the wintertime. And when we finally had a swimming pool built in our town, um, it was only a small 25-metre pool, but swimming was the main sport in the summer. So we would compete against the other, other smaller towns in the area. Uh, you know, I had a swimming club and I was uh, fortunate that my dad was very keen fisherman and loved going to the bush and taught my brother and I how to hunt at an early age, how to fish. Um, we just loved going away camping. Later on, uh, Dad got a boat and then he taught us to water ski. So the combination of camping and skiing and fishing, uh, that was you know, some of my uh, most treasured times as a child growing up was, was being in the outdoors with, uh, with my dad. Brilliant. Because I know that obviously water is going to factor into part of the story a little bit later, but also you know, the, the healing as well, your, your adherence to the ocean ultimately. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I, I don't know where my love of the ocean came from because certainly growing up, my exposure to salt water was an extremely rare occurrence. Um, certainly there was plenty of freshwater engagement, but uh, the ocean, I think from the first time I ever saw it, I was just in awe of, my God, how big is that? <laughs> it's huge. And uh, yeah, look, I, I developed a very strong love for it. Uh, but I think water overall, I, I, I am a bit of a water person. Um, I recently did one of those DNA tests, and it turns out that I've, I'm 9% Norwegian, so I must have a bit of Viking blood in me somewhere. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, then what about career aspirations when you were in school? Had you, had you always planned on going to law enforcement? No, no, I never. Um, my, one of my other loves was... Um, was Fossa King, either Fossa King for gold or uh, my dad and I had a an opal mine up in the north, northwest of New South Wales in a little area called Glengarry, which was extremely remote. 
and I loved opals. I loved mining for them. I loved cutting them and polishing them. And I uh, was very, very keen to go to university to study geology and become a geologist. But unfortunately, uh, my folks couldn't afford to um, send me to university and none of my family had ever been to university, so I didn't know anything about the possibility of uh, you know, staying in Sydney or wherever and, and working part-time and paying my way. I just didn't have any knowledge about it. And I'm not quite sure where the idea came to join the police force, but uh, probably in the latter part of my 11th year at high school, I started to look at the prospects of uh, the police force just as a cursory sort of a thing. And then I went to Sydney, I think it was uh, when I was about 17 or 18, probably 18, and I actually went to apply for the military to go into the army. But I went down to get some information about that and then I saw a, a sign for uh, police recruiting. They were seeking recruits to join the New South Wales Police Force and I looked at that and I thought, Wow, wow, that looks pretty interesting. And there was a very good friend of the family who was a police officer. And so I spoke to him and the more I looked into it, I thought, well, that's probably going to suit me right down to the ground. So that's what I ended up doing is applying to join, uh, join the police force. So I joined, I applied and was accepted. And then I started at the academy two weeks after my 19th birthday. Wow. Now, what year was this? 1977. Right, okay, so, so I want to make sure I got my dates right. So, um, what was the, uh, you know, the, the the academy like then for you when you got hired? What kind of what was the training like, and and how did they look at, at physical fitness and and the mental health side? I know we're talking about a long time ago, so it's it's very prior to a lot of the discussions that are happening now. Yeah, look, it was there was no there was no discussions at all about mental ill health, uh, PTSD. You know, I didn't hear of PTSD until the time that I was actually diagnosed with it many years later. So, yeah, there was a lot of emphasis on physical fitness. Uh, fortunately, when I joined the police, I was very, very physically fit. I was working in the shearing sheds. I was playing rugby union. Um, so, yeah, physically I was really, really, really well. And psychologically, yeah, I was 100%. Um, and the academy was was exciting because I was here with all these other people. Um, one of my mates from school, he joined up as well at the same time. So I had, had a mate there. Uh, but it was exciting and I was learning all these new things and the prospect of graduating and becoming a cop was like, wow, this is, uh, this is so good. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I, I, There's a lot of discipline back in those days. Uh, no, I don't say abuse from the instructors, but there was a certainly a lot of. Uh, I look in hindsight, so there's a lot of testing by them, you know, just to see how you'd cope with with aggression or confrontation, perhaps is a better word. Uh, but for me, I thought, well, it's just part of it. Yeah, just cop it on the chin. Um, and and yeah, overall, I say I absolutely love my time uh, at the academy. Now, what about defensive tactics? So, so that was in the the seventies. You know, the the Bruce Lee movies were all coming out. So, martial arts wasn't <laughs> extremely well known. Um, you know, what did your um, you know hands on uh, arrest techniques look like? We were given instruction in relation to some self defence 
tactics and also some like uh, wrist holds, wrist locks, that sort of restraining moves. Uh, and certainly the wrist locks and the wrist holds, they, they were good. As far as using self-defence as a self-defence, look, I, to be honest, I think they're things that you really have to train continually at so they become second nature. Um, but, you know, when I started as a police officer and was transferred to King's Cross, we had our own little sort of gymnasium upstairs where we had boxing gloves and we used to just go up there and, and spar without any protection just to – because we knew that really your instincts come back to being able to fight when you had to on the street. So, yeah, it wasn't a big component of our training, but there was some there. Then also there was the weapons training. We had six-shot Smith & Wesson revolvers. That was our service weapon. Um, and we received, you know, pretty basic range practice in those. Um, handcuffing. Uh, back in those days, we had what we call a short baton. It was only about 10 inches long that fitted in a little pocket down the side of your leg. Uh, they they were never used, never really carried. So, yeah, overall, yeah, probably about 5% of our training related to self-defence. Right. Now, um, when you enter the, the police service, this is something that I've, I've found on so many of the people that have been on this show. Some, you know, like myself, had a pretty non-traumatic childhood that before they walked in the door and put a you know a badge on their chest. Is there anything that you can look back in your childhood that you would class, excuse me, would classify now as childhood trauma that you had before becoming a police officer? Uh, yeah, there was. There was. I don't wish to go into the details of it, but yeah, there was. Okay. Yeah, see, that's what I'm seeing is, is, is a, another element of what we're about to talk about is that there's what we see on the job. There's the, the stressors of the job that, that we were talking about before we started recording, but there's also, you know, what we carry into the job. And I think that's another kind of very rarely addressed element is maybe, you know, helping some of these men and women now that we're up to speed on a lot of this address trauma before they become a police officer or firefighter. So they are more resilient when they walk through the door. Yeah, look, I, whilst there was, whilst, whilst I acknowledge there was, I don't say that was a factor that was part of my uh, ultimate development of PTSD and depression. Right. I, I, I acknowledge it, and I, um, but I don't say that was in any way causational to where I ended up. Right. Okay. So very early in your career, you had, you know, uh, you know, you're already being a police officer. And as we started saying before we were recording again, you know, everyone listening who's doing this profession, whether it's law enforcement, fire, EMS, the cumulative trauma that we see on, on, you know, our normal day to day calls are more than enough to create the kind of stress that can, um, cause uh you know a failure whether it's mentally or physically but you did have some pretty significant events in your career as well so the sydney hilton bombing um you know w what was what was the impact of that being so new as a policeman i think more fascination than anything that this the bomb could cause so much damage not only to the bodies of those who died and were injured, but to the, the garbage truck. You now, I can still picture the back of that truck and it was just ripped apart. And 
you know, seeing the, the front wall of the Sydney Hilton Hotel covered in what it was covered in, um, and then picking up the body parts on the awning of the building across the road. I thought, my God, you know, this stuff has been blown that far. Yeah, it was, I think, I, my memory is, whilst this is going back a long time, I, it was fascination that, that all of this uh, consequence could result from, from a bomb. Because, you know, obviously back then I'd never had any experience with explosions or explosives uh, and that was the first time, I think, in New South Wales Police that a bomb had actually been um, been activated. Yeah, now, so that was earlier in your career, so barely a year on then. So after that event, did, did it trouble you at all, aside from the fact that you just saw horrendous trauma to human beings? But over and above that, did it have any ripple effect? No, not at all. And bearing in mind, James, that you know, by this stage, that was February 1978, uh, I had had so much exposure to to death preceding the Hilton bombing. Um, yeah, death was was nearly not an everyday occurrence, but but death in the most horrific forms was. I was encountering that all the time in my police career. So this. Um, Whilst it was unique in the sense it was a bombing and, and people had been blown blown apart, basically, um, it was just another form of death that I was experiencing. Right. So then the bulk of your career, obviously, um, in 1995 is where things started to, to be very traumatic in a different way. What kind of cases were you seeing? You know, what, what um, were you assigned to for, for that 20 or so years? Uh, look, I had a, like most police officer, a mixed career. So I started out working what they call general duty, so on the on patrol cars and patrol trucks. Then I went to King's Cross, which was a sort of a high crime area of Sydney. Um, and I walked the beat there, which was probably one of my most uh, treasured memories of being a cop was, was my time at King's Cross walking the beat. And that was just fantastic. Then I went in, into training to become a detective Again, working around King's Cross, Darlinghurst, um, yeah, very high rates of crime, violent crime. Uh, for Sydney, probably the highest uh, rates of murder in the area, robberies, a lot of drug crime. And then I became qualified, and I then, as part of my training, worked in various places around Sydney, um, became qualified, designated as a detective, went back to Darlinghurst. And then uh, worked in that area for a while. I went to the detectives training course where I was a instructor in, in law and police procedures as detectives. Um, had some time back in uniform and went to the CIB uh, working with a special crime, a uh, special breaking squad, you know, targeting probably some of the most significant criminals in New South Wales. And then was transferred to the north coast of New South Wales, uh, which was my first time working in the country. So this was 600 kilometres north of Sydney and pretty much a lot of the crimes there related to, to drugs um, and general investigation. It was very busy. There was a lot of crime that we had to investigate, but nothing to the severity of what was I had experienced in Sydney. And spent some time in the, just a three-month uh, a temporary transfer to the Child Protection Unit investigating sexual and physical abuse of young children and 
I was also part of the Special Weapons Support Unit, which was designed to contain high-risk situations. And, yeah, just trying to, uh, to keep up with it all. Well, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the the crimes on children. So that is something that a lot of us refer to as, you know, some of our hardest, you know, calls, as it were, um, whether it's, you know, mass, mass casualty incidents or, or children. Did, did that specific kind of element hit you a little bit harder, especially with it being further into your career? I don't know whether I'd say hit me harder. It certainly numbed me to, to levels I had never experienced before. It was extremely distressing uh, and it was an area of work that I had only had one prior experience where children had been abused. And that, when I was working at Darlinghurst, I, uh, a person had abused a number of young boys on the, at the one time in one particular incident. And I found that confronting. Uh, but to work in this area for three months, I was very pleased to leave it after three months. Uh, my wife, she worked in that area for 10 years, and to this day, I don't know how she was able to to manage that, but she did an exceptional job uh, and so professional and so caring, and I have no doubt she saved the lives of many, many children that she engaged with. Well, this is an interesting question. It's more probably to drawing off your wife's experience. I was, you know, saddened by how many people I, I interviewed on here that had been abused as children, like I said, many of whom, you know, domestic violence or even worse, sexually. With her being involved in that so much, did, was there, was it more prevalent than the general public realized with, with the abuse on children? Oh, certainly. I, I, I think maybe that's a good thing that people don't understand um, how much abuse does take place uh, because you know, they don't need to be horrified. But I also believe that the changes that that have taken place, which allow it, allow it, uh, allows it to make it easier for children to disclose that they have been. Uh, assaulted has caused an increase in the number of cases reported, but but nothing uh, nothing can ever really uh, how to say explain the impact of these offences upon the children and those that are involved in the investigation and/or prosecution of the offenders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, I don't know how, how she was able to do it for 10 years. That's completely admirable because, I mean, it's, it's horrific when you find it happening to one, but for that to be your entire, you know, world for a decade must have been extremely, you know, wearing on her. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, the, but extremely um, caring person and a dedicated professional. Uh, and as I said, you know, I, I don't know how many lives she would have saved or, or changed for the better because of her. The compassion and caring professionalism. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, fast forwarding to July 9th, nineteen ninety-five, you had absolute worst case scenario where you know you lost actually your close friend and fellow police officer. So, um, if you're okay talking about it, I think that's a, it's a very important point, partly because of the 
the the lack of equipments, you know, slash preparation prior to the event, and then and then the after action uh, element as well. Yeah, yeah, two colleagues were ambushed and murdered in a small coastal town south of Coffs Harbour. Uh, as I said before, as part of the State Protection Support Unit, and we were called down there to assist in the uh, the rescue or extraction of of people who the commanders believe the government was going to murder, um, and then the subsequent search for the offender, um, and then the not the recovery of my colleagues' bodies, but the the engagement with them um, post post the identification and um, cessation of of, uh, of 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 the search for him. But I think probably, James, the the thing that still sticks in my mind most was, and I think probably the most damaging factor was the fact that there was a desire not to disclose to the coroner the full circumstances of what took place that night. I think overall that was probably the most, uh, had the most impact on me in a negative way. Yeah, so because I heard you talk about it in another interview, uh, you know, and I know that the the events leading up, you know, the the radios that weren't working properly, the lack of uh, the ability to use the appropriate firepower for that incident seemed like it was very frustrating prior. And then, yeah, you know, you lost two brothers, two fellow policemen, you know, one that was a close friend, and you would then expect the entire world to to pause in, in you know, your your law enforcement world. And rectify whatever could be done to honour the fallen, and you know, make sure it never happened again. Correct, and certainly, all the all the things that took place that night and that morning contributed to a physiological response in me uh, that I recognise. But probably the thing that the, the most morally damaging was. The fact that the the courage of Pete and Bob, and the lack of equipment they had, contributed, I believe, directly to Peter's murder, and and yeah, my view is if something can be fixed, you do whatever you can to fix it, particularly when when lives are at risk, and certainly there was clear evidence that their lives were placed at risk because of a lack of equipment. And certainly our lives are placed at risk because of lack of equipment. And when there was deliberate attempts to bury this information, uh, that's when it really started to affect me terribly. All right. Well, tell me about that. So so what did you start noticing, you know, from the inside out about your own behavior and, and you know, the, the, the physiological response to that event? Oh, in hindsight, I realised that uh, you know, my HPA axis was in complete overload that night, and then the the, the confrontation. So I'll just wind it back a little bit, James. So by the time that that happened in July 1995, uh, I was already in a state of burnout. I was physically and mentally exhausted, and was I operationally ready? In hindsight, no, I wasn't. So I was already in a, in a state of fragility and vulnerability vulnerability and the incidents or the circumstances of that night 
the physiological response that took place. It, it really uh, drained me of, of everything. And then the confrontation that took place afterwards in relation to not only the Crescent Head incident, but other work I was doing as well, uh, con continued to uh, sap me of any capability to, to fight back and, and hold my ground, so to speak. So when we understand that you know, when we're exposed to fear, uh, the HPA axis kicks into gear, and that's a really good thing because it's designed there to help us and protect us. But when we overuse it and we don't have the capability to restore it to its full function, it has a knock-on effect of us physically and psychologically. And that's something I had no idea about back then. Um, you know, I, we were given the uh, opportunity to speak to a psychologist post the incident, and back then because of the stigma involved and also the lack of knowledge involved of mental illnesses, particularly trauma-related mental illnesses, um, if you put your hand up to say that you are struggling psychologically, uh, your, essentially your career path would end. So there was an overwhelming reason not to say, I'm not doing very well here, I'm really not coping because a, your career was at risk and you didn't want to be seen to be to be weak by, uh, by those who you worked with. So when the psychologist spoke to us individually and gave us a pamphlet talking about you know, trauma and things, it was clearly, my, my response was, look, that's, look, thanks for your time, but no, everything's fine here. Um, all good, move on. And clearly, uh, in hindsight, no, things were not good. Yeah. Now, you mentioned as well about the the traumatizing element of almost shooting the other police officer that did live next door to, you know, where this this uh, murderer was. So tell me about how that kind of factored into, you know, the, the mental turmoil that you were in. It was Ivy uh, that's just that one moment in time. Yeah, I came so close to killing him. But the thing that troubled me was I felt as though I had failed by not actually pulling the trigger. And I felt as though that I was a coward for not killing him. Uh, I felt as though that I couldn't be trusted because I didn't kill him. And all of these elements... Uh, really have not been put to bed, so to speak, until probably about a month ago, believe it or not, after all these years. I still carried all those feelings through my psychiatric assessments, my psychiatric sessions. Uh, I had horrific nightmares about it, about killing him um, and, and worse. And it wasn't until I engaged in a working environment with a colleague I now have who was able, enabled me to, to, to understand that the reason I didn't kill him was because of my professional training. I did exactly what I was trained to do, and that was not kill somebody unless I'm absolutely certain that, A, I can identify the threat, and B, that that threat is real, and that my life is about to, uh, to end. So it was because of my professionalism that I actually didn't shoot him. Uh, but it said it wasn't until after all these years I've been actually been able to process it and realise that what I did was exactly the right thing to do. And since being able to do that, um, all that trauma I'd carried for all those years um, has completely disappeared. 
That's amazing. So just just to kind of backtrack for a second, then, so the you were suddenly faced with the policeman. So yeah, there was a miscommunication, and 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 you didn't shoot him because he wasn't the murderer. But it, after the event, you thought that because you hadn't pulled the trigger, that you you know had had paused, had 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 um, you know buckled under pressure. When the reality was, as you said, you did the exact thing where you did identify it in time and therefore didn't shoot. Yeah, so just to, for your listeners to understand, we were uh, sent out in the middle of the night to go down into the into the village to extract a policeman and his wife and children who they believed the gunman was going to murder next. We were given wrong information about the description of the house. It was an extremely tense situation. You know, all of, There was myself there, I think five other guys. Um, we were all expecting to be ambushed and murdered ourselves. And... We're, I was the lead of the the, uh, the group and covering off on the house houses as we're going further into the village and suddenly a door flung open and there was a silhouette of somebody standing there pointing something metallic at me, you know, about uh, probably two metres away. And with my gun, my shotgun, I pointed straight at this silhouette's chest area with my finger on the trigger. Um, it was literally milliseconds between that that silhouette being shot and not being shot. But as it turned out, it was actually the sergeant, the police sergeant, we were we were sent into into rescue. So now again, looking looking back, and I, you know, it's crazy that it was just a few weeks ago that you were able to finally kind of put that to bed, as you said. But um, what with those events leading up and we talked before about you know shift work sleep deprivation you know the the stressors of, that you carry into the job you know the 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 cumulative effect of almost 20 years of police work by that point what what point were you at um mentally you think right before that i know you said you were at burnout but what kind of had that not happened where do you think you would have found yourself anyway uh I was probably on a, on a bit of a path to to a not a very good place, and that was what I I really had trouble um, living with was the fact that I was ultimately diagnosed with PTSD and depression, and those elements were put down to a number of critical incidents I was involved in, but when I really and I could accept that, yeah, the critical incidents were horrific and they were traumatic. And certainly they provided every element regarding the diagnosis and symptoms of PTSD and depression. But I could never accept why. Why did I end up that way after these things when all throughout my career I had been exposed to horrific and traumatic incidents that never, never affected me adversely? So it, I really struggle with, with the why factor. Why did I become this way? And over time, I've been able to, to understand why, and that was that in, that was 1995, was the Crescent Head shootings. By the end of 1993, I'd had five months off work with my wife, and we had gone to Paris to be married, we rode our push bikes around Europe for our honeymoon. We rode 6,000 kilometres on our push bikes. We came back physically and psychologically 
at extremely high levels. And less than three years later, I'm walking to the bathroom to shoot myself. And whilst there was the elements of the, of the development of PTSD and depression, I still couldn't accept that this had actually happened to me. So when I, when I realised what had happened was the fact that when I got back to Australia, I became involved in an investigation of such intensity and such complexity that my lifestyle changed dramatically and so my physiological health changed and I was in a state of chronic stress at the time that Crescent Head happened. And a lot of these lifestyle changes related to sleep deprivation, alcohol consumption, lack of, uh, lack of physical movement and training, poor food choices, increased consumption of nicotine and caffeine. All these things, I believe, significantly contributed to my very poor state of physiological health. And that's what I see for first responders. It's the, the breakdown of their physiological health leads them vulnerable to, to the impact of critical incidents. Well, you mentioned the suicide ideation. I mean, you were, you were so incredibly close to actually doing it. So, so just kind of walk me through from, you know, post, post, uh, the, the incident in, um, uh, Crescent Head, excuse me, um, to where you found yourself at that point and then, and then lead me back out of that, like how you were able to step out of the shadows again. Uh, well, certainly after Crescent Head, uh, the, the degree of conflict in my workplace increased uh, my my levels of, of anger and and almost hatred for what was taking place increased my workload continued to increase it was a very complex investigation as I said before and that was causing a huge amount of conflict with my commanders because I believe that uh, somebody had committed a crime and they believed somebody else was responsible for it. Um, there's, a, there's a whole lot to go into, but it was it was so intense and you know, my lifestyle was completely turned upside down. And then I was involved in um, you know, the rescue of that little boy from the, the stormwater pipe. Uh, that, again, was terribly traumatic, even though we successfully rescued him. Uh, and that was probably the nail in the coffins, pardon the pun, where uh, I just had nothing left in the tank and I was on this terrible downward spiral. And, and, I, th and I look back again, James, and I think that post the rescue of that boy, um, I literally did not sleep for a week and that was such a huge impact on pushing me over the edge, that, that, that one week of just not sleeping um, recurrent uh, horrific thoughts about what was taking place. And I think that's what started to push me into the world of suicidal ideation, the fact that I think I, you know, I just couldn't cope anymore, starting to feel helpless and worthless and all those things that people who have survived a suicide attempt um, you know, feel. And, you know, the agonising pain, uh, I just couldn't cope with it anymore and I decided that for me, the best, uh, the best way to stop the pain was to uh, end my life. See, it's it's, it's so sad because when you look at it with you know with a, a fresh set of eyes, you look at all these factors like you said, sleep deprivation, organizational stress, the cumulative trauma, the acute trauma, um, you know, and it was an absolute perfect storm. And one thing I I hear a lot from people that thank goodness have you know have been 
pulled from the jaws of suicide right before it happened is that feeling of being a burden to their family. And what I found very fa- interesting with you is it, it, you know, the, the burden was actually you, you were scared for your family because of the way you were dreaming. Is that correct? Yeah, there were some uh, horrible nightmares that related to to my family, and I became uh, terrified that I was just going to lose my mind completely and hurt my family. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't ever feel as though I was a burden to them. I never, I don't have any recollection of those emotions, but certainly I became terrified that there was a risk to them, and for me to eliminate that risk was to eliminate me and that's what i I chose to do yeah well if you're okay i'd love to talk about the actual moment where you're about to because i think that one interaction that saved your life is so important for everyone who's not in crisis to to be looking out for someone that might be going through something you know critical yeah look uh it's it's well documented that People didn't see any signs in me. There was no outward evidence that I was uh, changing apart from uh, there was maybe a bit of higher levels of of anger. Um, My work performance was, in the eyes of my commanders, declining and they were trying to have me transferred back to uniform. But I think more as a penalty for my my the stand I was taking in regard to this investigation, um, and also my unwillingness to change my evidence about what happened at Crescent Head. So I think that was more of a punishment than a than a a, a, a well being factor. So yeah, I read a lot of fire, uh, reports submitted by my colleagues in in my workplace. Uh, in relation to my medical file, saying that they uh, they didn't see any anything in, in me that caused them any concern whatsoever. So it really wasn't until I was physically walking to from my office towards the bathroom with my gun uh, that a work colleague saw the gun in my hand, and obviously you don't walk around your office with your gun in your hand. That's just not normal. And that obviously piqued his interest in what I was doing. And maybe I had a look on my face, I don't know, that he he engaged with me and um, and asked if I was okay. And what was your response? I mean, you know, there you are about to, you know, you've made the decision already, now you're about to execute it. You know, what was that conversation like? How was he able to to get you to to put your weapon back down and then, you know, begin that journey towards the light again? Uh, Challenging question, James. Uh, I I have a recollection of when he asked me if I was okay, I said, no, I'm fucked. And I don't remember any other conversation at that particular time, um, I don't remember if I gave him my gun or he he just took it from me. There was I have no recollection of any uh, hesitation from me to give up my weapon. I think at that stage I 
I was just probably at at my wit's end. Um, my mind was in a place that it had never been before. Uh, I remember the next recollection I have is being driven from the police station by this person in a police car towards my home. I have a vague rec recollection of just looking out the window. Um, I remember pulling up in the driveway and him saying, I hope you're going to be okay, mate, um, and s stepping out of the car. And really my next recollection is um, being at the hospital that night with my wife beside me. Right now, bringing your wife back into the equation, which is so, so important, you know, I heard you discussing in another podcast how they'd wanted to, you know, commit you as as it happens a lot, even in Florida here, you know, if there's a threat to someone else or themselves. Tell me about the support you got from your wife and, and how that factored into to you, you know, be able to get yourself out of this place. Um, yeah, we were engaged with a, uh, a counsellor who we both knew professionally and personally. And this was the first time that uh, I had ever disclosed to anyone what was going on. Um, Deb had no idea. And then the deeper the conversation became, um, the counsellor could, could identify that potentially I was a risk to my wife and my daughter and therefore wanted to what we say is schedule or, or commit me to a, uh, a psychiatric ward, possibly to be restrained physically. And uh, I don't know how or why, but Deb um, explained to her that she was not going to allow that to happen, even though probably legally she couldn't have, but she made it very adamantly clear, I believe, that um, that wasn't going to happen. And... Uh, advise Sue to, if need be, um, have a number of police stationed in our home to protect her and our daughter and took me home with the agreement, I believe, that I would be taken back to our police medical officer um, the next morning. Amazing. So, well, I mean, good, the, well, the reason why I asked that is I had um, Sally Spencer-Thomas on, who's a psychologist, and she talks a lot about how they've shown that that kind of, you know, forced uh, medical or psychiatric stay in many, many cases is actually more detrimental. So, you know, the the fact that she was able to circumnavigate that particular event, uh, and I'm sure was, was one of the contributing factors for you being able to begin to heal rather than having yet another traumatic event added to the list. Yeah, look, with respect, I don't say it started to allow me to begin to heal. Um, in many ways, it pushed me deeper into a place of horror because it was a realisation that uh, I had, in my, in my mind at that particular time, that I had completely lost my mind and was completely broken. You know, I've often used the analogy of being Humpty Dumpty and falling off the wall into a thousand pieces, and that's exactly how I felt. Uh, I've, you know, the feeling of if humiliation and shame were ever-present and overwhelming, uh, to go before the police medical officer the next morning who was a local general practitioner but designated as a police medical officer. Um, he and I had always had a very strong professional relationship and I classed him as a friend. Uh, 
Uh, he realised that I was in such a state of absolute distress. He got on the phone and contacted the, the local psychiatrist. And um, Deb took me there straight away to the psychiatric unit where I was engaged by the psychiatrist who, and again, you know, I remember sitting in that chair and I, and I just, I, I honestly wanted to die right there and then because I, I just felt I was just in agony, just pure agony, and I couldn't see any way out of it. So, you know, this is a, a terrible misconception that, that people have is that uh, you know, getting help is going to help. And, but that people don't understand that sometimes being with a clinician or having to go to a clinician just reinforces your feelings of, of what an absolute failure you are, how, what a loser you are and how hopeless you are and how worthless you are. And I think that's one thing that, that people just don't have any consideration for. Yeah. No, and that, that again, that rings true with what Sally was saying about the, the facility. I have my little... My little boy, who um, I guess he was twelve when it happened, you know, he he just was asked why he was upset in class, and then the next thing I get a phone call that he's been sent to a psych ward, you know. So you know, and that was damage. Yeah. I saw the damage that that did to him. I mean, it, it was horrendous, yeah. and he had no business being there in the first place. So yeah. So so that event aside, then what were some of the elements that did start to work that were able to start help you address some of these issues that you were going through? When I was diagnosed by the psychiatrist, uh, that gave me some degree of, well, it's not just me that I can't cope. Uh, the, the first two weeks, I was placed on an extremely, extremely strong form of medication that is no longer used in Australia. Um, and that just it was designed for me not to form the ability to have any intent to do anything, particularly harm myself or harm anybody else. So I just turned me into a zombie. Um, I had to engage with the psychiatrist three days a week. And again, that just reinforced my feelings of uh, just how worthless I was. Um, the I know now that my commander issued a directive to everybody that they were not to in, contact me or engage with me in any way. So the lack of connection was immediate and brutal. Uh, the lack of support for Deb was immediate and brutal. And the drug that I was on, uh, literally, the best benefit it gave me was the fact that I, I, I got back to sleeping and I think to answer your question James the first thing that that helped was just allowing my body to rest and sleep whilst it was a pharmaceutically created sleep it just slowed things down and that was essential in, that, in those first two or three weeks yeah, well, you spoke about, you know, the, the lack of support from the department. I just had a, a firefighter, a Canadian firefighter that went through a very similar thing. Um, and I think that's a huge lesson for people listening is, you know, when, when we call ourselves a brotherhood or a sisterhood, especially if you, you know, you've been in a police department or, or a fire service or, you know, a medical environment for 
decades. Yeah, that that's when when our brothers and sisters fall, when they need us. That's when we need to band together, no matter how busy we are, no matter you know what's going on in our personal lives, because that lack of support, especially if it's even the reverse can you know can literally be the invisible hand to push these people over the edge because that's that tribe that you need to lean on and if your tribe turns your back on you then that's the deepest you know sense of rejection on top of the guilt and the shame that you've already accumulated yeah i agree with that i agree so then it became a case of uh, after i think two two weeks or more of, of these drugs um I said to the psychiatrist, I can't take these anymore. Um, I can't live like this. Uh, by this stage, it already started me on antidepressants. Um, and it was a case of just explaining to me, you know, that Crescent Head, the rescue and all these other things had contributed to the development of PTSD and the accompanying depression. And we sort of formed a bit of a plan about, you know, what, what was going to take place. Uh, you know, I was, my main aim was to get back to work as quickly as possible, just to prove that I was okay, that you know, this was just a speed hump. Um, and that, that became a focus to recover my health, to go back to work, because I was desperate to go back to work. Uh, fortunately, he started to encourage me to rebuild my physical health, uh, he, he deemed that to be important. Uh, we analysed my alcohol consumption, my nicotine consumption and my caffeine consumption. And he said, you know, one or two of those have to go. So I chose to uh, get rid of alcohol and I cut back on my caffeine. He said, yeah, you can't do all three, um, but choose at least two. So that's what I chose to do. I started to get back moving and then started getting into uh, extending that to hard physical training at the gymnasium, you know, really crazy levels of physical training. But it started to rebuild me physically, which certainly assisted in in helping to rebuild my, my mind. But I understand now what I was actually doing, um, which I don't think we actually knew about then, was actually re-establishing my HPA axis. Um, and, and starting to re, regain my physiological health. And that was okay. And then, um, unfortunately, the psychiatrist moved on. There's another psychiatrist in town. I was referred to a psychologist who I think had only recently graduated. And after 30 minutes with that psychologist, uh, I think they and me realised that this was not going to be of any benefit. So then I had no, no psychiatric or psychological support. Um, only the support of my local GP to issue prescriptions for antidepressants. So it was up to me then to um, to carry on my recovery as best I could. And then sadly, um, my desire to go back to work uh, was, uh, was severed when I was told by headquarters that uh, my my service had been terminated despite me never applying to be medically discharged. Uh, the service had decided to medically discharge me. Right, and how how was that? I mean, it sounds like a really stupid question, but there's so many people I've had on here that have been either had you know mental 
health injuries or you know physical injuries and and one of their goals is to get back and it may not even last you know a long long time because i think a lot of them then realize just as we said the rest and recovery you can get from not being a shift worker anymore is 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 invaluable but it is it's that target it's that goal to get back to be the same police officer same firefighter you were before you know the event so how did that affect your recovery when when you're shooting to get back you know back to work and then that shot down oh just just absolutely decimated me but in in hindsight it probably would have been the worst thing to do to go back into the environment i had come from there were certainly uh other other areas of uh, employment within the police force that i believe i could have done but that option was never given to me and i think it's what i see james is it's trying to refine your sense of worth. And for most people who, who treasure their work, whether they be first responders or others, it's that wonderful sense of worth your work gives you. And in, in hindsight, that's what I was looking for, is to regain my sense of worth, hoping that being back to work was going to give it to me. So it, it really sat me on my butt uh, for a long time and I wanted to give up. Um, I, I had no... No reason to keep going. Um, I was just in that horrible dark place again where the, the choice of living or dying, um, the preference was was to die. And, it, and it's it's you know crazy when you look at you know your resume, I guess is the best way of putting it, with you know responding to the bombing, being there to you know to try and help Pete and Bob and then the uh saving Jai in the the Coffs Harbor, you know, um drainage uh, pipes when you look at that all the achievements i know you i know you helped facilitate um some arrests and some big organizational crime organized crime figures as well you know that there's so many achievements so many things that you could be proud of on top of you know family life and everything else but when people are struggling mentally it it distorts so much so you know you had done an incredible amount for a career as, as a first responder but that feeling of inadequacy still hounded you despite you know a full you know extremely rewarding career yeah and it wasn't until uh you know, only in recent years when i when I believe that through my engagement with my work at the Mental Health Commission, working with you know, really uh, highly experienced and qualified trauma specialists, clinicians, um, I was able to address the thing that really was always chewing me out. You know, why did I end up so bad? And once I, in my again, in my opinion, I believe that I had established the why factor. That allowed me to accept it and understand it and then move forward. So recovery is a very complex process. And when you have reached such a state of, of desperation and disintegration of your mental and physical health, uh, there's a lot of elements need to be put into place to help you gain the recovery that you're seeking. So whilst I always support the notion that there are times we need clinical intervention, there are times where we may need pharmaceuticals, we also need to look at the whole body recovery, physically and psychologically, that has to take place to give this person back their life. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's something that I've seen you know, a lot here. And, and, and absolutely, sometimes you know, the pharmaceutical element can be a good, you know, a bridge onto whatever the next step is. There's obviously people with, you know, schizophrenia and some of these more severe um, chemical imbalances where, you know, the pharmaceuticals work well. But another incredible, you know, element of healing that I see is nature. So that kind of brings us back around to the ocean again. So how did the the ocean factor into your healing specifically i think that um when i used to sit in that psychiatric unit uh in the waiting room i used to disassociate myself from the reality of where i was by um, imagining i was on a boat sailing across an ocean and to this day I, i have no idea where that where that concept came from because as we talked about before, I'm from the country, not the not the not the seaside. Uh, but just to be on a boat sailing across an ocean was a somewhere that that just gave me enormous calmness in that time of absolute crisis. And uh, part of my recovery was spending a lot of time on the water or under the water scuba diving. And after I was discharged from the police, I continued my scuba diving because I really loved being under the water. Again, that was such an, an amazing place of calmness. And, and I think just just nature, because it's na- it's beautifully natural, there was nothing there to scare me or, or worry me or trouble me. I could just be at peace under the water. And yeah, I'm not quite sure. I think it was... I saw an ad in a paper about a boat that was going to do a trip to Norfolk Island, which is an island 300-odd miles off the coast of Australia. And this is, a, you know, you go on this sailing boat, sail to Lord Howe Island, get some sailing experience and have a great time. I thought, that sounds like a top idea. I'll go and do that. So went down and did a, a couple of days uh, sailing on this boat, and it was all fun. Met the other crew that were paying their way to go on this thing, and anyway, it turned up into an absolute disaster. It was so terrifying, getting caught out in this horrific bad weather, um, and it turned me off being on a boat for a long, a long time, possibly years. It was so terrifying. Uh, but then I don't know what it was, James. It's something drew me back to to doing more sailing. And cut a long story short. Um, uh, d- despite Deb suffering horrific seasickness, she agreed to do some sailing courses with me and ultimately um, agreed that uh, part of my recovery uh, program should include getting a sailboat, and that's what we did. Yeah, we didn't just get a boat. <laughs> Tell me about the journey that you took in in the aforementioned boat. Uh, well, I, I've with my obsessive research i i discovered a boat which i thought was going to be perfect for for my family to to sail on and we'd done some uh, bear boat holidays together and we all love being on a boat and i thought this is we're all happy together this is where i feel as though i'm getting some control back and bearing in mind yeah you know, i had been discharged for 10 years by this stage had i completely recovered no i, I hadn't I hadn't put a lot of things to bed, um, but I was certainly a lot better. And doing these sailing courses gave me, you know, I qualified, so they gave me a sense of achievement, and which is very important. Um, I'd become qualified as a marine surveyor, 
So I was spending a lot of time engaged with commercial vessels and I just had this idea that, you know, I, I wanted to see my family. I wanted to, to be with my family all the time. And I thought if I'm on a boat, I can have my family with me and I can look after them, I can care for them, I can, I can be a dad and a husband in a good way and not this uh, psychiatric mess that you know, they had, had experienced for such a long time. So, yeah, I, I did go to England um, and I did start the process of buying this boat in England and um, we decided that this was going to be a new life for us all, that we would go to England and get on board this boat. Um, we didn't really have any great plans, but I think that having the boat was central to uh, the recovery the recovery process. Deb, I don't know how she did it or how she does it, but she was prepared to sacrifice so much to move overseas, uh, take our children with us, and you know, they were prepared to sacrifice so much moving away from their friends their school friends and their other social friends. Um, I don't think they really didn't know about the why factor for me, but they were happy to do it. And, you know, I, and I say this all the time, I'm not suggesting that you've got to go and buy a boat to recover from trauma-related mental illness. But what I do say is having that boat and doing what we ultimately did, which was to actually sail back to Australia, that was part of my recovery process because it gave me such a sense of achievement, such a sense of worth again that I, I was able to fill a void. And whatever it is that's, that's going to allow you to have a sense of achievement and accomplishment and fulfilment and fill the void that is lost through psychiatric illness, through the loss of your careers, all those things, whatever it takes to find that and fill your void to regain your sense of worth, that is critically important. And that's, that, again, is something that we are failing to recognise and we're failing to do in, in the recovery process for people. Yeah, I, th I thought it was fascinating. Firstly, the fact that England and Australia are opposite sides of the globe. So that was a, <laughs> that was a hell of a journey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was 16,000 nautical miles, you know, like nearly 30,000 kilometres. It's a bloody long way. And there's two huge oceans to cross. Yeah, I'll never forget uh, the day that we saw land leaving the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco and sailing west 3,000 nautical miles across the Atlantic Ocean. And we first island we see is the island of St Lucia. And to see land after 18 or 19 days at sea, uh, the sense of accomplishment at that moment in my life is like, oh, my God. Oh my God, I have done something that most people would have thought was impossible, not only for somebody who had suffered such horrific psychiatric illnesses, but for most people to actually sail across an ocean is a massive accomplishment. But for me, it was just so deeply personal. Um, it's very hard to describe the emotion when I saw that island come into view. I can imagine. And you hit the nail on the head too earlier as well, you know, with, with the, the treatment, you know, I think there are people that have tried what we would consider traditional, you know, medical, um, treatments for, you know, mental health. And 
th- that might work on, on one small alleyway and it might work completely with someone. It might be part of the solution with other people. But, you know, th- that's why equine therapy and diving and, you know, all these other things are working because I think you've got to also connect with with something that you just truly love. And I don't think anyone truly loves sitting in a <laughs> in a psychiatrist's office or a psychologist's office. But, you know, if, if you can be in the rainforest or, you know, whatever it is that you've always dreamed of doing or a passion of yours that connects you with, with the earth and, and you haven't yeah. done that yet, that's definitely a missing piece of, of the healing puzzle. I totally agree. And, and that's where I say the importance of lived experience in the guidance of recovery is so important. What I did may not apply to anybody else in the world, James, but there are elements of what I did could be applied for others, but it has to be a very personal approach, a very personal identification of what that person is seeking. Now, what is it you want to do and why is it you want to do it and how are we going to let you achieve that? Brilliant. Now, I know another area that I hear uh, from many people is, is so, so healing is that the altruism, like getting to the point now where you're through and now you're able to start helping other people. And that is obviously incredibly helpful to the people that you're helping, but it's still helping your own healing as well. And I know you do a lot of work with, with charitable organizations. So tell me about how you found yourself in those. And then again, what the impact was for you personally when you started giving back. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, fate's a funny thing, but I guess when I became very public about my history, uh, the first the part of that was when a good mate of mine and a, a brilliant journalist, Mark Whitaker, did a story for the Australian Weekend magazine on the, f- the five recipients of the Cross of Valour. So it's myself and four other men who've received the award. Uh, he did a, a very detailed story about that. And then uh, 60 Minutes picked up on the story and then 60 Minutes did a story on the five recipients of the Cross of Allah. And that's, you know, through those things I became very public about uh, PTSD, mental illness and then that sort of uh, grew because this was probably the first time that in, in that I'm aware of that a, a police officer was so open about mental illness or mental illnesses and the impact it had on him and his life. So that drew a lot of attention and then I started, you know, my first uh, – mental health organisation I became involved with. I just I volunteered for Beyond Blue just to go out to events and hand out pamphlets and brochures and the, the, the wristbands just to contribute to do something because we'd moved back to Sydney by this stage. We'd sailed back to Australia. Um, we moved down to Sydney. Uh, I wasn't working and I, and I wanted to do something just to contribute. So I started doing this. And then uh, my book was published and a lot of media attention was given to the book. And then Beyond Blue invited me to become an ambassador, uh, which I did. And then that then led me to a completely different role with Beyond Blue where I would go around Australia um, talking about my experiences with with mental illness and talking about my life uh, post-diagnosis 
and recovery. And that was very important to give people hope to say, you know what, um, things can get pretty ordinary, but uh, recovery is possible. And that was very important. And I, and I stayed doing that for a long time. Then got involved with other charities, just using the profile that my ward had given um, and the media that I had received to help other organisations. Uh, ended up um, becoming a Deputy Commissioner at the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales, where under the Mental Health Commission Act, uh, at least one, hopefully two of the Deputy Commissioners have a lived experience of mental illness. So that was in recognition of my, my uh, ability to contribute the lived experience component. And then uh, working with the New South Wales Police uh, in their mental health intervention team training, going out to police commands, talking about addressing the why factor, why do cops and first responders become mentally unwell and taking the focus away from the critical incident aspects but the, the causational aspects, the lifestyle changes, which I still believe are, are so significant in the decline in the physical and mental health of first responders. So then got involved you know, doing stuff volunteer basis for the uh, New South Wales Fire and Rescue and the paramedics, volunteer organisations, just to try and help educate people because we are failing to do that so uh, so so terribly. It's, un it's helping people understand the why factor. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I was just going to just ask you for a second as well. When, when many of these men and women I had on did the same kind of thing they, they they kind of became public on whatever they went through whether it was writing books whether it was just to their own department all these people started coming out of the woodwork who had been shamed into the shadows by the stigma and you know they realized like whoa there are way more people going through exactly the same thing as me than i realized so did you have that same kind of uh, impression once you put yourself out there yeah look there's certainly uh, a lot of a lot of people are becoming very public about their experiences with mental illness and the causational aspects of their mental illness. And I don't, I, I still think there's a bit of an imbalance between the focus on causation and the mental illness experience as opposed to recovery. And it's like, for whatever reason, organisations like to focus on the negative as opposed to the positive. And I don't, I don't have any qualms at all about how we engage in a way that we shift the focus to the positives, which you know, we, we shine the light on the good stories so that gives people who are really struggling hope that they can or will get better. But also, James, I think one of the greatest failings at the moment is we are still following the path down the recovery, the reactive model, as opposed to uh, shifting the balance more towards a proactive model of reducing the incidents and or risks associated with trauma-related mental illness and mental ill health generally. 
Yeah, I agree completely. Now, you mentioned the why factors. You know, one of the things that we touched on before we started recording, as, as I've said, was sleep deprivation, something that I talk a lot about as an underlying cause, not only for mental ill health, but also a lot of the physical disease we see in first responders. So, with, I mean, obviously touching on that, but, but what are, what are the why factors that you've identified as, you know, over and above a, an acute critical event that you see contributing to, to some of us struggling? Uh, first and foremost, sleep. The, the changes in our sleep and the changes in the quality of sleep we have. Uh, overall sleep deprivation, and it's not only causational in relation to mental ill health and physical diseases and illnesses in first responders, it's across across the world. Now, when and I show a slide in my presentations that, that relate to sleep deprivation and what it can cause, and it is terrifying. So many illnesses uh, that can be fatal are directly related to sleep deprivation. And it's like no one knows about this stuff and no one really cares about it. Just, oh, yeah, if I don't sleep, I'm going to get tired. Well, no, as a matter of fact, it can cause you to die. It's, it can be that dangerous. So first and foremost, the quality of sleep changes for first responders through, you know, the shift, uh, the length of shifts, the times of shifts, um, the, the changes in our circadian rhythm, the inability to sleep, um, using alcohol to self-medicate to try and get to sleep. That That's my number one focus. And then I see that uh, our nutritional levels change because of the inability to get good nutritional food or have access to good nutritional food at work, after work or whatever the changes to our diet, we, we tend to eat massive amounts of, of processed carbohydrate, which again, I, in my opinion, is extremely dangerous. Uh, we tend to increase our consumption of alcohol and caffeine, which have flow-on effects. A lot of people, when they start to become psychologically and or physically unwell, their ability to uh, move their body and exercise changes so they're not getting the blood flow, the body's not functioning properly, and their inability to, to manage acute stress situations, uh, learning how to calm the body down again. We're not educating our people about that. So I'm a, I'm a big supporter of the engagement of what I call diaphragmatic breathing, um, other names for it, you know, controlled breathing, tactical breathing, uh, you know, the benefits of doing that are just phenomenal. So we're just not educating people about why. And it drives me to distraction when I hear organisational people say, you know, you've got to get good sleep. Well, well, why do you have to get good sleep? And they're not, it's not explained to them that the brain and the body needs this sleep because it's doing this when you're sleeping. It's giving these benefits. It's reducing the risk of all this stuff. So... You just can't tell people what to do. You've got to explain why it's important that they do it. And that's, again, part of the proactive um, engagement that I would love to see. Yeah, and I agree 100%. Like the, 
the the shift work that we have in the fire service specifically in the US uh, is 56 hour work weeks. We do 24 hour shifts, which in the fire service, I think the 24 makes sense, but it's the period of rest in between each one. And, you know, they're, they're, you just see it. I mean, we just slowly get broken down. We always get injured eventually because, you know, even the musculoskeletal system isn't able to repair. And then obviously that's happening in the brain as well. So I, I yeah. hope that we can pull that, you know, elephant, you know, out into the to the the light as it were and and discuss that because we we talk about clean cab for our cancer you know and we talk about oh it's the you know it was this event for ptsd when when the reality is yes of course these are these are factors but if you're not bolstering the the homeostasis in the human body and sleep being one of the biggest pillars of health then everything else is you know is is a second if you're not attacking that main element yeah and uh some years ago i got involved with Mike Petrus from the Mental Health Commission of Canada. And uh, Mike and the team developed the Mental Health Continuum. I'm not sure whether you've ever seen the Mental Health Continuum card, but it is absolutely brilliant and it breaks your state of psychological health down into four categories and, and they're colorized. So you've got green, yellow, orange, and red. And I'm a huge supporter of the Mental Health Continuum and the programs it relates to. And what I see is that first responders go from the green zone up into the orange zone through lifestyle changes and work incidents. And when in that orange zone, it's a really narrow bridge to jump across to the red zone where it's really dangerous. And if we can keep people away from that orange zone as much as possible, we we will reduce the amount and severity of trauma-related mental illnesses and also I believe that we will reduce the amount of suicidal ideation, suicide attempt and successful suicides. Absolutely. Well, you are the, the, the proactive measures that you measured, obviously, the, I mean, the, excuse me, the proactive measures that you spoke of, the, the sleep is one element. What other factors come into it as far as being proactive? Because I know that one of the things I've talked about is, is, introducing candidates so they've been hired they're police officers they're firefighters you know giving them two or three counseling sessions at the front door so if they do have childhood trauma they can offload it if they don't fantastic well now they at least have a relationship with a mental health professional that they can you know carry on through their career so what are some of the elements that you you advise um, departments out there as far as the proactive side i think Allowing the recognition that lifestyle changes as first responders can or may or will have a negative impact on their physical and psychological health. And if we can reduce those risks, we're going to do make a big difference. The importance of engaging lived experience with clinical expertise as a team is really important from an educational perspective. So it's not just a matter of um, saying we need counsellors to be available uh, because most people won't proactively seek out a counsellor until they're in such a state of high distress that they feel as though that's their last hope. But if you get on the front foot 
and you engage. I think the, as example, the, I was in Hong Kong and I spent a day with the, the psychology unit from the Hong Kong police force. Those psychologists engage with police from the day, essentially their day of recruitment. So the, the recruits, the police get to know these psychologists personally and they get to understand what they can do to help them. So it doesn't, it just becomes the normal as opposed to having somebody at the end of a door or through a door or at the end of a telephone that it's up to you to contact them. And I think most people who've experienced uh, psych psychiatric illnesses understand that it is almost impossible when you're in such a state of distress to make that phone call or walk through that door to get help. So you've got to bring the help in before help's needed to make it part of it. Well, this is just one of one of my colleagues who I, I know is going to help me understand what I'm going through at the moment. And that gets back to, I think, first responders love the science aspect of it. They love the practicality of it. They love the the knowledge. They really get to that as opposed to the, to the unknown. So it's a long-winded answer, James. I apologise, but I think it's important that we engage with with experts at the earliest possible stage of first responders' careers to help them understand what's what may take place or what is taking place in their brains and bodies through these times of, of um, very unusual experiences. No, I think it was a great answer, and you got me fascinated now with Hong Kong. I might have to dig your, you know, pick your brains on that um, for another guest for the show. But uh, it's interesting when you were talking about that. It it really reminded me of the phrase "you fall to your level of training." Now, obviously, we talk about that whether it's you know your 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 weapon skills, whether it's your fire ground skills, your medical skills. But that does actually resonate with mental health too. If you're in crisis, but your go to is always to you know, go to whoever you have a relationship with because you've been proactive with, you know, mental health professionals, it's going to be an easy thing for you to seek them out because you already, you have been before. It's just, it's it's muscle memory almost. Whereas, as you said, if you're in crisis, you've never reached out to someone before, the chances of you doing that and then even finding the right kind of person are very, very slim. Yeah, and, and I, I don't like the term mental health with, with respect because what I've seen over the years is the term mental health has just been morphed into mental illness. You don't have a mental health problem, you've got a mental illness. So I, I like to use other terms. I call it uh, psychological health or physiological health. But whatever term we use, it's important that, and I've seen it firsthand where a, a clinical psychologist who's, who's an absolute specialist in PTSD and the like explains what is happening when you experience fear and explains it from a scientific perspective, which makes it so interesting and so easy to understand that the first responders that we engage with go, ah, oh, wow, yeah, that's, oh, well, that's just, that's perfectly natural, that's perfectly normal then I feel this way. Exactly. You just normalise it because that's how your body is responding. That's what it's designed to, how to respond. You know, your brain is there to protect you, and this is its way of protecting you. And when it's explained to people, they go, so these feelings I'm having, it's perfectly natural. Yeah, of course it is because of this. They go, oh, okay, then, that's great, thanks. Well, that's really helped me. I feel good now. So, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. So it can be done. We can make enormous changes 
but we just have to have the powers to be understand why we need to change and how we can do it. Yeah, well, exactly. The understanding, I think, is huge. And yeah, I mean, the, the fight or flight responses, you know, when that ties in with hypervigilance and, um, you know, burnout, I mean, when you're putting now into, into context that the layman understands, I think that's it, is that we are, exactly. you know, the, the medical side, we do have certain medical knowledge, but we're humans ultimately. So, you know, we don't need the, the details of the neurotransmitters, but yeah, you put it in the caveman bear terms, you know, it, it does, exactly. it does resonate with us. Yep. Yep, and that's a big thing that we do. You know, we we spend a lot of time talking about. Um, I, I call it the HPA axis. Um, people refer to it as a fight or flight response. But when they understand what is actually taking place in the body at that immediacy of that fight or flight response being activated, and how it can be a good thing, and how it can be so damaging if the fight or flight response is not kept in equilibrium, uh, particularly long-term for first responders and particularly, you know, I, I use the example of paramedics. Their degree of hypervigilance in, in busy or, or rescue, fire and rescue when they're in, in really busy places going from job to job to job to job, and the cops as well, um, it's that fight or flight response is activated all the time sometimes up for 12, 13, 14 hours at a time. Um, the body's not designed to cope with that for extended periods. But the damage it can do uh, is extraordinary. And this is the thing that we educate people about is the consequences of not keeping your brain, your mind and your body in equilibrium. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's it. I mean, you touched on the tactical breathing earlier, the box breathing. Um, you know, I think the meditation breath work, um, you know, yoga, low intensity exercise. There are so many things that we can do. And then obviously from an administrative point of view, understanding that if you give more rest and recovery to these men and women, you're going to get far more longevity out of them. So it's an investment yeah. on the front end. Of course it is. And you, know, you, you spoke, you touched on yoga, James. Yeah. Um, I've only recently started doing a little bit of yoga. Uh, it was late last year, pre-COVID. And I could not believe how fantastic I felt after the first time I did yoga. And I wanted to know, I wanted to go back and do another one to really analyse why. And I put my smartwatch on to say I was doing a yoga session. And all through the yoga session, I'm analysing each stage of what was going on. And... Um, and after each yoga session I did, my resting heart rate dropped, my sleeping heart rate dropped, my sense of, uh, of positivity and wellness was fantastic. I had absolutely brilliant sleeps both those nights. And I analysed it to, to see that, A, it actually was a, a very high level of cardio activity I'd undertaken, which was good. But the most important thing was I had actually done diaphragmatic breathing for about an hour and a half. And the combination of those, I think, is why yoga works so well. And you know, I sing its praises from the highest rooftops now uh, and just wish that I do more, could do more, um, and that I didn't know about it many, many years ago. 
Yeah, I think there's there's two things that people say. I wish I'd done this when I was younger: is yoga and playing the piano, because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're both full of regret. But all you have is today, so you can start yeah, that's today. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions because I know we've been on for for a while now. But the first thing I want to talk about is is your book. So tell me about the cost of bravery, you know, why you wrote it, and then how people can find a copy themselves. Yeah. Look, I uh, Mark Whitaker, who wrote that article for the weekend. Uh, magazine. Mark and I remained friends after that. And when uh, I think it was after we had completed our sailing trip, you know, Mark said, Look, if ever you want to write a book, I'm, I'm here to help you. And uh, that was in the back of my mind. And another uh, dear friend of ours, um, uh, Ronnie Bowen, she develops websites and she developed a website that essentially was allow you to do a time capsule of your life to leave for those uh, who you wanted to leave it for. And she asked if I'd do a little story just to, as an example of, of what, what you could leave. So I wrote this quite detailed uh, submission for Ronnie and she read it. She said, oh, my God, I knew nothing about this. You should write a book. So I actually enjoyed writing this stuff for Ronnie and then I started to just write and write and write. And uh, it was really quite um, therapeutic, the writing bit of it. And this was after the sailing trip and you know, towards getting to the time to come back to Sydney. And then I spoke to Mark and I sent him a copy of my manuscript, for want of a better word. And he said, oh, Alice, this is a great, great police report. <laughs> but if you want to write a book, I'll teach you how to write. So um, Mark very kindly phrase I use often, Mark taught me how to put uh, pictures into words and so I essentially rewrote it and I engaged Mark on a professional basis to be my uh, editor and his guidance was exceptional and again the, the therapeutic value of writing um, going deep into my memory was, was very strong so much so that I was able to, to physically go back to Crescent Head where Pete and Bob were murdered and retrace the steps of what took place that night. And that allowed me to really put a lot of things, a lot of trauma in a place where it was able to dissipate and disappear. Uh, and then uh, the Sydney Morning Herald wrote a story about Deb and I in the Good Weekend magazine called The Two of Us. In that, it said that I was writing a book. A publisher from Melbourne saw that, contacted me. And the rest is history. It got published by uh, Penguin Random House. And, yeah, it was something I was extremely proud of, the fact that my book was published. And from the book being published, um, a lot of people reached out to say uh, thank you, particularly people who'd lost their loved ones to suicide, who never knew why they had taken their lives. It really helped people understand uh, what work their work had, had done to them and allowed a lot of people to, to find peace. And, and it gave a voice to a lot of people who, who like you had said before, were shunned and, and pushed back into the shadows to feel as though that they couldn't talk about it. No one wanted to listen, but clearly people do want to listen. They do want to know. Yeah, well, exactly. And then did you find as well the, um, the fact that you were able to tell the story um, you know, of, of Crescent Head in your own words so that you weren't kind of suppressed by administration was, was that healing too to, to get the story out the way it should have been told yeah because i always wanted to honor the bravery of bob and pete 
which I don't believe has ever been honoured properly. And that was really important to tell their story um, so that people understood and could be very proud of them, what they did, and, and proud of them as, as being police officers who, who lost their lives trying to protect their community. Absolutely. Well, the, the Cost of Bravery I saw was on Amazon. Is there any other, any other places that you recommend people go to? Uh, look, for international buyers, I think, I think Amazon is probably the best. I know you can, in Australia, you can buy it online. Um, and also there's the, you know, the, the Kindle version. So there's still hardbacks. You know, I, was, I was very, very proud that it reached the, the – because uh, in Australia, to be classed as a bestseller, you have to sell 10,000 copies of your book. Uh, in other parts of the world, it's 5,000, but Australia, for some reason, is twice that amount. So when I was contacted by the publishers to say, you may now call yourself a bestseller, um, that that was a huge thing for me. It was like, oh, wow, that, that's so cool that I can do that. Um, so, yeah, that was that was really good. But I believe that yeah, if you just Google it, um, you'll find ways and means to, to get a copy. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, um, on that same theme, the first closing question I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love someone else has written that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. I read a book written by uh, Mark Donaldson. Mark was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions in Afghanistan. And... I, I know Mark. Mark's a personal friend, and I value that friendship very much. But what really got me with Mark's book was the way he transformed his life, and it was one of those sliding door moments. And you know how he lived through his young life to be able to to do what he did was extraordinary. And it's not just a book about war or or battle or conflict. It's a a book about a person making an extraordinary life from a very challenging um, period in their lives. So it's, it's called Crossroads, and yeah, I, I really value that book. And I, I said I very value my friendship with Mark. Uh, for first responders, uh, I've just read a book recently called uh, uh, Not Ten Feet Tall and um, Bulletproof by Cameron Hardiman. And Cam was a, a police officer, a rescue uh, helicopter wind chop. Uh, he would go down to rescue people. And I love Cam's book. It was fabulous. Uh, that was a, a really excellent read. So for people interested in, in military and or first response, uh, they would be two that I'd highly recommend. Fantastic. You know, I'm sure Mark's book has been recommended once before. I don't know if it was Dan Pronk or on his Australian SAS, but I know I recognize that that name. And the other one I haven't heard before. So that's two fantastic recommendations. So thank you. All right. You're welcome. The next question, is there a movie, a film that you love? Oh, look, I've I've just watched, finished watching a series called Afterlife on Netflix. Uh, created by Ricky Gervais, and it touches on a really challenging subject of suicidal ideation. Um, and it's, it's a very complex show, and a lot of people might find it far too confronting, but I really enjoyed it because it was so raw and so honest and, uh, yeah, it's probably one of the most 
powerful series that I, or shows that I have seen of recent times. So, you know, it, it deals with, with grief or the inability to grieve and the reality of, of what it's like when you feel suicidal, uh, trying to, to cope day by day when you're in this place. But there's a lot of dark humour and there's a lot of comedy. So yeah, tears, tears and laughter, it's got the whole lot in it. So that is probably the one that springs to mind at, at the most. Excellent. I'm going to have to watch that. I loved him. I know it's a very different topic, but in the office, the original office and some of the stand-up has been great. But my wife's been making me watch Fuller House, which is the re reboot of Full House, the whatever it was, 80s or 90s movie. Okay. And it is awful. So she owes me. So we're going to watch it after like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Brilliant. And then um, on the same kind of theme, is there a documentary that's, that struck you and that really moved you before? Um, look, I'm... I'm a bit obsessed at the moment with um, sailing vlogs, so <laughs> I'm enjoying just uh, taking time to uh, watch people's experiences sail around the world. When we did our big trip, I took thousands of photographs, but not a whole lot of video. And whilst there's some lovely uh, documentary about our trip, um, I'm just loving seeing the fact that people are just saying, you know what, we're sick of this bullshit life. Um, we're just going to sell up and go and buy a boat and live life in a very simplistic way and, and love every moment that we're alive and able to appreciate all the all the little things in life. So um, if anyone likes sailing, I'd recommend you jump on YouTube and, and Google sailing and you will be overwhelmed by the amount of people out there sailing their boats around the world and, and loving life to the fullest. Brilliant. I actually had a retired firefighter from, from the Miami area who he and his wife, I forget how many years, but it was... I think it was like 12 years they lived on their boat kind of around the Caribbean and they just, yep. they, you know, they dove for their food every day. I mean, it was, it was incredible, but you know, they finally yep. came back when they got older and, and, and went back to their home. But yeah, I mean, they did exactly that. Yeah. Look, it's, it's an extraordinary way to live. And I think one of the things that I take most out of our trip is the fact that our daughters learn to appreciate the little things in life. Um, just to be able to turn a light switch on in their cabins or to have a shower, to have enough water to have a shower were, were joys. It was like, oh, wow, we can do this. So that was, I think, the takeaways from our trip were so important was the appreciation of, of these little little things that we have that are so important for us. You know, good food, fresh water and a roof over our head. You got that? You got a lot? Absolutely. Full recalibration. All right. So then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes. Um, a man who I have enormous respect with uh, and I've done some work with, uh, Dr. David Said. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist. Uh, he was head of the uh, psych psychology unit that went to war with our Australian soldiers, special forces. Um a specialist in PTSD, treats a lot of veterans, fireys, paramedics and cops. Uh, he, I think his ability to explain things to first responders and their families and those that are involved with the first responders would be of enormous benefit. Excellent. Thank you. Now, you mentioned about the um, working with the Hong Kong police. Did you have any connections with them? Because I think I'm always looking for, you know, outside the the, the 
boundaries of my profession and, and certainly my profession in in America specifically. So, did you did you meet any any people over there, either police, fire, whoever that was uh, an interesting person that was English speaking as well? Yeah, yeah. The um, I mean, the English is is uh, yeah. I I'll email you that the details of the head of the psychology unit who I spoke with. Uh, we had a board meeting with the number of the of the head plus the number of the psychologist, uh, and it was fascinating. You know, their approach to being proactive in engagement was uh, such a good model to work with. So I'll certainly email you the uh, the contact and with an explanation in the email as to why I'm sending those details. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. All right, so then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress now? I know, ironically, you did yet another rescue a few years ago at a train station. So when you're not continuously saving people, (laughs) (laughs) what do you do to to relax? Uh, When when I was very ill, uh, I used to do a lot of cooking. We actually opened up a little bed and breakfast for off. That's another story. So lately I've been doing heaps of cooking and heaps of baking, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I work on my, what I call my foundation stones, James, and that's good sleep, good nutrition, little alcohol, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, moving and exercising, and social contact. Unfortunately, the social contact's been a bit difficult lately. But if my foundation stones um, are in good shape, then I know I'm going to be in good shape. And that's what I, I tend to focus on. Uh, it's It's been hard not being able to get out like we used to get out. But you know, the restrictions in Australia are lifting regularly. So I know everyone has been impacted by COVID, some more than others. Um, so once... Once all the restrictions are lifted, I still think our lives won't be the same for a long time, but it's uh, just maintaining our own physical and psychological health as best we can helps us uh, ride through the, the ups and downs of life. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been challenging. Obviously, the mental health has been you know probably seen a very diverse spectrum of of results you've probably got you know some people at the time home has been incredibly healing especially if they're fortunate enough to you know to have a loving family and there's sadly i'm sure some people that found themselves very isolated that struggled through this whole thing yeah yeah and i've seen that firsthand it's um it's absolutely crushed a lot of people yeah well i I hope the new normal includes you know an increased uh, education and understanding of the factors that contribute to physiological and psychological health. Yeah, and that's that's where you step in, James. I mean, it's because of people like you that create these podcasts that, that share this knowledge and information. And if we didn't have people like you, it wouldn't be getting out there. So I say uh, thank you uh, for all first responders, past, present and future, that we have people in the world like you who know the importance of of the work that they do, the importance of these people, um, and you want to make sure that they remain physically and psychologically as healthy as they can be for as long as they want to be in their careers. And, and without people like you, uh, it, it's not going to get better. So hats off, mate. You're well, doing a great job. Well, thank you, mate. Well, I mean, the, the show just consists of people like you, so I'll throw that right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> you started it. <laughs> so for people... For people that uh, they want to learn more about you, obviously there's the book. Where else online can people find you? 
Uh, I've got a website. It's just www.alansparks.com. Um, I've got an Instagram account. Um, I'm on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn. So, uh, yeah, love to connect with people, interact with people. Um, that'd be fantastic. Brilliant. Well, Alan, I just want to say thank you again. I mean, every time I get someone like yourself that's really, you know, been through some turbulent times, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword because I know the value of the storytelling is going to be so powerful to people listening, but I know it's also, you know, pulling the scab off a wound as well. So I appreciate you being so, you know, so courageous and, and telling your story and allowing people to learn from what you went through. Oh, thanks, mate. Um, so I'm one of perhaps millions uh, with similar stories, but uh, we, we, if we can share the knowledge, uh, we can continue to help. And I think that first responders are the most courageous, extraordinary people who have this infinite willingness to care for other human beings and uh, our societies would be nothing without them. So we have to help them. 